Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And in our last episode, we dealt with mazes. We actually started in a maze and steadily worked our way out of it. And now we have escaped from the maze. We are outside of this confusing, confining, perplexing, stressful environment of enclosing walls. And we have now escaped into uh, the realm of the labyrinth. Now, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, and we're going to rehash here, there's a difference between a maze and a labyrinth. These terms are often used interchangeably. To a certain extent, it's kind of an elegant variation where you use use a word to describe something that is similar but is not quite the same. They're often used interchangeably, so you can't get too up in arms over the distinction. But certainly for, for modern users, there is a distinction between labyrinths and mazes. The maze is a path of... Uh, it's not even a path. It's just the space of walls that are confining you in, and you're trying to find your way out. There are dead ends. There are corners. There may or may not be a minotaur wandering <laughs> around after you. Uh, it is the stuff of the hedge maze in The Shining. It is the stuff of everything you see in the movie Labyrinth, despite the name Labyrinth. It is, uh, it is a movie in which the individual roams through mazes. Yeah, it's a spatial puzzle, and I really think about uh, Labyrinth as more of the antidote to a maze. Yes. Because you're not engaging the hippocampus as you would in a maze because in a labyrinth you don't have to re- really worry about the path or your memory or even trying to stake out a blueprint because really the blueprint is in front of you. It may look like a maze, but really it's one uh, continuing path that just circles around. Yeah. you. There's one entrance. There's one exit. And there are no choices to make. You simply follow the path and the path is winding and the path uh, is slow going Mm -hmm. because you're having to take all these turns and these in these twists but never do you have to actually think do i go this way or that way because there are no choices it is it is one curving line from one into the other it's like a ball of string you know if you were to travel through that string on the outside it looks intricate complicated but but really it is one path and i really think about it as an act of submission when you enter into this labyrinth because you are following a preordained path right and you are yes. submitting yourself to this path and in doing so um it is a sort of meditative practice mm-hmm. because you are now um i guess you could say you are busying your mind just with the act of walking and that's what we're going to talk about today we talked about the stress response with um mazes, but now we're going to talk about this more meditative quality of the labyrinth and what it means to us on a psychological and physical level. But first, I want to mention that labyrinths are all over the world um, and have been for, for many thousands of years. You can find them in the United States, in Europe, in India, Afghanistan, Java, Sumatra, and various sites in the U.S. left by Pueblo Indians, the Hopi, and Zuni, and others. Yeah, you see the design of a labyrinth. You see it on the classic Roman flooring. You see it in the, the remains of labyrinths throughout Scandinavia and Northern Europe. You see it in the graffiti at Pompeii. Ancient Britons cut labyrinths into the turf. Uh, Bronze Age tombs in Sardinia. Other carvings uh, dating back to 3000 BCE. It's like the maze. Uh, we discussed uh, how the maze is like this pure physical or pattern-based, but certainly a physical embodiment of either internal confusion or external navigation confusion. Mm -hmm. It is about the state of confusion in the human mind uh, as a physical reality. And like you said, the the labyrinth is an antidote to that. 
Yeah, it really is the polar opposite. And, and it's funny that those terms are used interchangeably because when you think about a labyrinth, you think about wide open spaces, right? Because mm-hmm. this is typically something that is um, cut into the earth or made with stones or made out of stones. And so you can still see the vista around you. Uh, you're not your vision isn't impaired in any way. In other words, there's not something on your right or left, and uh, you can see and hear everything. Right. In fact, some would say that you're able to pay attention more to these aspects of being. You're able to really tune into the sounds around you, the smells, the sights. So it really is the polar opposite of a maze. Yeah, yeah. There are no walls rising up around you. It's a, a winding course, but there are no choices to be made. And you generally find these, or you often find them rather. Uh, in churches, uh, either in, in right. or in uh, serene garden environments, uh, I encountered one at the Desert Museum in Arizona, where they had one out uh, amid the, the cacti in this one little cactus garden, and it was just really serene. You start at the beginning of the labyrinth, and it just curls you around, and you're just walking, following the path, noticing all these beautiful succulent plants growing all around you, and then eventually you wind your way back out. And uh, you just yesterday sought out a labyrinth within the maze that is Atlanta. So uh, especially since there aren't really, I mean, labyrinths don't really make for great movie and and fictional storytelling, you know, because movies and and, and fiction, and I mean, it's all about uh, putting you in a situation of drama. So, of course, fictional characters wind up in mazes. They rarely, it seems, wind up in labyrinths. So describe your experience with the labyrinth. Um, I walked it at St. Bartholomew's uh, Episcopal Church, I believe, and it was an outdoor one, and it was really lovely, and I'm sure I was psychologically primed for the event, but um, I spent, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes walking it a couple of times, and what I noticed about it is that it does draw you out of yourself. Again, the landscape is open. You can see the sky. You begin to notice things. And this is really important. I think we'll talk about this um, a little bit later, but it takes you out of that chattering part of your brain a bit. Yeah. Um, and it puts you, it gives you a little bit more stillness. And that's what I noticed. And here's how I actually tested the level of meditative uh, quality to this experience. I went to the Whole Foods after this. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, uh, it's late December now. And there's a lot of uh, bustling action at Whole Foods. I despise going to Whole Foods even when it's a a calm period because people seem to me to act very aggressively in Whole Foods, whether or not they're trying to get a parking space or they're just taking their shopping carts around and jamming into the aisles. For some reason, I find it to be a disturbing place to be, even (laughs) though it has a sort of holistic vibe about it of health and wellness and all that stuff. Afterwards, after walking this labyrinth, I was like I was floating on air. I did not care. I parked really far away. Who could care about getting a parking space <laughs> up close? I didn't. Um, but, of course, all of this, again, could be psychological priming. But I think that does speak to this act, that when you go through this physical act, that there can be some sort of transformation mentally. And was it circular, uh, basically, in form? Because it seems like that that is uh, sort of the, the standard for the labyrinth, is that looking at it from above... It's this circular zone of, of in which this path twists and turns. Yeah, it was circular, and at the very center, it had uh, symbols. It had three things that were a symbol of something. Now, I think you guys all probably have been hip to the fact that I'm not a religious person, so I don't know what the significance of that is. I'm, I guess I'm going to make a guess that it was like the 
is it the Holy Spirit, the three things? Larry Curley and Mo. Yes, no, no. Larry. Yeah, those those were the faces. It I thought was it was not, just pattern was recognition, not. but now that you say that, I think it was Larry. Curley I have and a Mo. feeling it was the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. Right. But uh, it's interesting that you mentioned how it is this. There's this feeling of guidance mm-hmm. in the labyrinth, so it makes perfect sense that they would be in holy spaces because uh, certainly within a church environment, this is the idea that God is my co-pilot, or you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna trust in something greater than myself to guide me through this life. Mm-hmm. Life. And therefore, what is the labyrinth? But it is allowing the path to guide you and, and freeing yourself of the worries about which way did you go this, this way or that way. One of the most famous labyrinths that is, that is in a church setting is Chartres. Yes. And um, an archaeological excavation has shown that the cathedral, this is in France, overlies the alignment and foundations of earlier Roman buildings. And this it, was built in 1260. Yeah. And Still around today. This is really cool. If you visit the labyrinth on the summer solstice, you'll see that at exactly at noon, a sunbeam falls directly on a nail that was placed in the floor. You, you know, and there's something beautiful about the. I mean, it's still there because there are no there are no walls to fall down inside a labyrinth. You construct a maze. Uh, we mentioned uh, the maze of Minos in the podcast about mazes. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that actually existed. In any way, shape, or form, you know, that's that's an area of discussion among historians. Most seem to think it did not. We certainly cannot find evidence of a vast subterranean maze in which a monster lived. Uh, there's some speculation that the palace itself uh, there on Crete was kind of like a maze. Mm-hmm. It had big, thick walls, and it was very intimidating and a little confusing. But a lot of that has fallen down, and we've had to, you know, sort of to, to piece things back together. So a maze... Uh, not only is it confusing, but it can fall and change due to the weathering of the world. Whereas uh, it's kind of beautiful to think of a labyrinth as something that that is persistent because there's nothing that can be eroded. It can be covered up, but it's still there underneath the turf if you know to look for it. You know, what's interesting about that, too, is I was was thinking about the Nazca lines. And Mm -hmm. these were lines drawn by uh, the Nazca people, and this is a civilization living in modern Peru. Yeah, we're talking between 400 and 650 A.D., yeah, and uh, th- this uh, civilization actually disappeared about 1,500 years ago, but you can s- still see the traces of these lines, these labyrinths that were designed by scraping away red dust and rock and revealing the white ground underneath it. And um, and they're it, in the shape of, of, of animals. Yeah, and, uh, it's and so people, cool. Uh, like, well, animals. The monkeys. Monkeys. Yeah, it's kind of people-shaped. Some humans. Yeah. Birds and fish are represented. Hummingbirds, sharks, lizards. Yeah, and and these are huge. We're talking about six hundred and sixty feet across, and so ancient aliens people love these things. They, <laughs> the idea it's like they were telling aliens about monkeys. That's what this was about. Well, actually, what they think is that this was a rite of passage, in that it was a contemplative act done by small groups of this civilization that they walked these labyrinths in order to get to the the end of. Um, what was largely this metaphorical ritual for yeah, them. Yeah, not only, the idea here is not only is this uh, a line that uh, creates the shape of a monkey as visible from a spaceship, mm-hmm. uh, this is also, this is a line that you traverse. You're traversing the shape of the monkey or the lizard or what have you. Yeah, so again, you know, this is probably a more meditative practice that was done by the civilization um, and not communication to uh, ancient aliens. Um, but I think that it points to this idea that throughout history, there has been this sort of walking meditation done in, in different ways. Yes, and we'll get more into the idea of walking meditation shortly. 
Yeah, particularly when you consider it being used as a healing practice and, and actually in, in medical um, centers yeah, you see, around the world. you see them pop up again and again. And as we mentioned in the last podcast, a great source for these two episodes was a book by Esther M. Steinberg titled The Science of Healing Places. She devotes one chapter to labyrinths and mazes, but the whole book is about how physical environments affect us, both in body and mind, effectively how they uh, affect the mind-body through our, you know, and this can be negative, this can be positive, and, uh, and how if you're building something like a hospital, you want to take that into account. You don't want to build a hospital that feels like a maze. Mm-hmm. If anything, you want to build a hospital that feels like a labyrinth. That it's open, right? right. And, and failing that, you just build a labyrinth in the courtyard, which many places do. Right, because you have this idea of opening space metaphorically and physically so that your brain can sort of acclimate itself to that yeah. space. Um, as you had mentioned, the book Healing Spaces, uh, there is a Harvard cardi- cardiologist that Sternberg, the author, talks about. Um, his name is Harvey Goldberg, and he says that a lot of these meditative practices, meditative walking, or yoga, or tai chi, um, is really about gaming the relaxation response through breathing. Yes. And he says, quote, I think of it as an unclenching. When the system gets overly tense, it's like a tight fist. It's locked. Somehow, by focusing your attention elsewhere, there is an unlocking and unclenching of the fist. Now, this is really important when you think about an act of uh, walking meditation but as in a mm-hmm. labyrinth when you're walking around like that because you are focusing on something other than yourself and yet you're allowing your thoughts to unfold naturally. And this is that contemplative act that uh, labyrinths encourage. Yeah, so think of this. When you're actually walking on the path of the labyrinth, what are you doing? Why are you feeling relaxed? You, first of all, you're focusing on the path. You're, having to, you're looking down. Maybe you're looking up a little bit too, but if you're, you're kind of looking down and watching the path that you're walking. There are no walls to, to hedge you in. It's about following this path on the ground. Secondly, because of this, you're moving slower. And because you're moving slower, you're breathing slower. Also, unlike a maze, your vision is not obstructed. You're able to hear and see the world around you, like you mentioned. And you're, you're not having to depend on, uh, you know, landmarks or what have you. You're just kind of on autopilot. Yeah, which allows you to get into that mental space that is healing as Sternberg and Goldberg and uh, Herbert Benson, who is very much an authority of meditative thoughts and actually meditation itself. Uh, we will talk more about this. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about why labyrinths were built and how it affects us at the physiological level. Hey, Julie, you know how some small companies, they think that leasing a postage meter is the only way to really get a a business going with postage for their letters and their packages? They think that's the only answer, but there is a better way. There's a much better way, and it's called Stamps.com. That's right. Unlike a postage meter, Stamps.com has no hidden fees like meter ink charges or reset fees, no long-term contracts, that's important, no extra hardware to buy or lease, and Stamps.com can save you up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Uh, let's see here. Plus, with Stamps.com, you can do more than you can do with a meter. You can use your existing address books, which is really convenient. And you can send tracking information to recipients with the click of a button. So the choice is pretty clear here. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. Yeah, we use it all the time to send out show correspondences, occasional packages. I can see where this would just be great for a small business. Yeah, and here's the really cool thing. There is a special offer. You can use our promo code STUFF. 
for our special offer. That's S-T-U-F-F, and it is a no-risk trial, plus $110, a bonus offer here, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. So, guys, gals listening out there, do not wait. Before you do anything else, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in stuff. That's S-T-U-F-F. Go to stamps.com, enter stuff, and start your stamping empire today. All right, we're back, uh, and we're continuing to explore the idea of labyrinth, which, again, is the, the calm, singular path that winds you through a space and uh, and takes you to the other side, as opposed to a maze, which is chaotic and confusing and full of stress and anxiety because you don't know if you're going this way or that way, and then you run into dead ends, but there are no dead ends in a true labyrinth. It's true. And uh, when you look back at some of these more ancient labyrinths like the Nazca Lines, again, it comes up, why, why did people uh, make these? Why were they built? Why were they created? And certainly a spiritual reason is, pre- is present. It's um, very much a possibility for some of them. Some people think there are astrological reasons behind mm-hmm. them. And if you look again at Chartreux, which is the cathedral in France, Again, you see evidence that it was designed in conjunction with the summer solstice so that maybe it had something to do with that. Um, I tend to think that if the sunlight is beaming down in the middle of a labyrinth on the summer solstice at noon, that that would be very powerful to churchgoers, particularly if they're walking the labyrinth. Because it's the idea that this path is in tune with celestial dynamics, with the mechanics of the the universe. Right, and that you are in unity with nature. Yeah. Yeah. Like it makes me think back to uh, to Dante's Inferno again, particularly Dante's Paradise. Paradise is a very strictly ordered thing, like the cosmos. Whereas when Dante's actually in hell, it's an ordered system, but it's, it's a lot more confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this, I like this one, there's the dancing theory. Oh, yes, this is great. This takes me back. There was there were like a couple of old goofy cartoons. I'm sure Holly would tell could tell me exactly when and where they, uh, they occur in the, the long list of Disney productions. But there were a couple of, of goofy cartoons. Holly Fry of Pop Holly stuff. Holly Fry of Pop stuff. Yeah. yeah. There were a couple of goofy cartoons where I th- and one he quit smoking and another he was trying to lose weight. I think. Mm-hmm. And they dealt. They were really cool. They they dealt with like an adult goofy like <laughs> yeah. dealing with like the demands of being like a bachelor. It was weird stuff. I have to check it out again. But but there's one where he's like trying to learn how to dance. Mm-hmm. And there's this kit he gets where you listen to a record and you place these cutouts of feet of, uh, of footprints oh, right. yeah. on, the, on the floor. Uh-huh. And then you dance by moving. And he has like a mannequin with him. And you move from one these steps to this step. And this teaches you how to dance by following the patterns on the floor. Is this so that he could now in his bachelorhood woo a woman? Yes. Okay. So this is helping kids who are seeing their their father, who's now a new bachelor. Well, and... I think these were, and again, pop stuff will have to clear me up in this. I think these were aimed at these were these were kind of like a, an early Simpsons in a way because huh. they were they were kind of aimed at maybe a little bit at kids, but more at the uh, adults. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, the the dancing ritual. Yeah. And the idea. So so the idea here is that labyrinths were potentially not merely this thing that you walk on and serenely follow, but you dance through. Because think about what dance is. And I'm not talking like, you know, grinding, booty shaking necessarily. But, but think of something like, uh, like square dancing, yeah. uh, some sort of ritualized dance, certainly the, uh, the whirling dervishes, where there is a pattern that you're following and you're, you're giving yourself up 
to the pattern of the dance, to the rhythm of the beat, to the to, to you're giving yourself over body and soul to the music and the movement. And in, and that is in a sense a labyrinth. You were becoming you kind of become the labyrinth. You become the dance. You become the music. In that becoming, you cannot be this bundle of worries and and uh, and troubles that you are the rest of the time. Yeah, it's the rhythm of the night. You're leaving all your cares behind, right? Is, is that a song? Oh, the rhythm of the night. <laughs> yeah, I won't do that anymore. So what's interesting about that, too, is that this is uh, not just something that is, again, an act of submission, but perhaps some sort of rite of passage. This is perhaps something that young men who had proved themselves as warriors would go through this dance. Mm-hmm. This is also a fertility rite for women who would go through these um, the, the labyrinth dancing. And again, you're talking about a syncopated rhythm. You're talking about a group activity yes. that would line everybody up. Yeah, we've talked before when people are singing together, mm-hmm. it's like their, their neurons are all firing on the same pattern. And uh, a similar thing with these movements. Right. Think about it as the first conga line. Yeah. Was it conga or congo? I don't know. Let's, let's Both go sound with conga. Good to me. Yeah. It's interesting in the book, uh, Steinberg points out that this is possibly why, like early in church history, like certainly churches came to embrace their labyrinths. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Bart's here in Atlanta is not ashamed of their labyrinth, they're rather proud of it. But in the old days, there was maybe a little suspicion where the older members of the church, especially, were like, I don't know about these labyrinths. There's something kind of uh, not right about them. Something oh, you know kind why? Of fancy about them. You know why? Why? Because they have found all sorts of evidence. In fact, an Etruscan vase from 600 BC depicts not just the dance in the labyrinth, but sexual acts going on. Ah. So the church kind of was like, eh, I'm not sure about showing the positions, right. the sexual positions, um, you know, overlaid on the labyrinth here. Maybe we could kind of cover that up a little bit yeah uh, but there's a little bit of that involved with it and that you know and that of course hints at paganism right so let's talk about the way that it affects the body okay so you talked about this idea that when you are walking you begin to slow down your breath right right and you begin to relax so your breathing slows your heart rate downshifts and this is when your body gets the cue that it's time to slow down and relax. And this is the opposite of the stress response. This is the relaxation response. Yeah. The slow breathing activates the vagus nerve that counters the adrenaline-like sympathetic uh, nervous system response of stress. Yeah. And what's really cool about this nerve is that uh, we've known that it has its workings with stress in counteracting stress, but it also regulates the immune system, in particular in fighting inflammation. So when we start to talk about this in the stress response, we start to talk more about the immune system as a whole, because we know that if your body is in a constant state of of stress, that this can be destructive at a cellular level. So this is why it's important to try to uh, promote as much of this relaxation response uh, that you can. Yeah, and it's really crazy to think about it, about uh, mazes and labyrinths in this sense. The idea that a maze, mm-hmm. a physical space, can physically harm you, like on a cellular level. And right. likewise, a labyrinth can heal you. Because when we talk about healing spaces, it's easy to think of it in terms of some hippy-dippy nonsense, has some, some spiritual talk, and maybe I'm not that into the idea that a space has all these magical properties about it. But as we've discussed, a space does have an effect on the body and mind. And, uh, and we see that, in a way, in their purest forms in the maze and the labyrinth. 
Yeah, because again, I will bring up the default mode network. This is that part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, and the medial medial temporal lobe. This is that part that is the mm-hmm. midline chatter, the me, 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 the fear response. This is all. This is concerned with the ego and the seat of consciousness that really helps to inform us. It's supposed to balance our sense of self. But when we have too much of the chatter, there's hyperactivity. That's when depression sets in. That is stressful, right? And as we discovered in our podcast, um, The Shaman and the Scientist, it is meditation that is one of the things that can quiet this part of the mind. And this is really important in helping to relieve depression. And I wanted just to bring up once more that Dr. Judson Brewer used fMRI to scan experienced meditators, and he found this decreased activity in the default mode network. Now, meditation really is just about, again, gaming your breath. And because if you do that, obviously your body is going to get these cues that it needs to relax. So this walking meditation through a labyrinth is very much a, a type of meditation. So when you think about that, then then as you say, it's no longer just like this hippy-dippy, like, hey, meditate, and you will feel one with the world. It's that it is changing you at a cellular level. And we talked about this, too, with meditation right. changing you, um, your genes as well, your stress genes, um, being able to actually turn those off, those stress responses. Steinberg pointed out, too, with resuscitation. When you're resuscitating an individual, you're you're talking about one breath every six to seven seconds once the heart has started back up again. And that is the optimal breathing pattern to get the optimal amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide into the body to nourish tissue and keep the brain working. So it makes sense to me that you would begin to see some of these labyrinths popping up in medical centers because Mm -hmm. no doubt those are some of the most stressful places to be in because either you or a loved one um, is in this medical center being treated or you're someone who works there and it's a high-stress job, right, Right. Um, to be in the medical profession. So if you had this labyrinth there and you had patients walking it that could or you had family members or friends who were walking it in, in these times of despair and stress, then it could help you, that relaxation response, to open you up a little bit more in your mind and uh, to sort of tamp that down again at the mental level, at the cellular level. Yeah, it has a lot in common with uh, walking meditation which is a a form of meditation you do walking and remaining conscious of your steps and your breathing. But it is also, as Steinberg points out, it has a lot in common with Tai Chi as a gentle exercise. You might not think of walking a labyrinth as exercise, but essentially it is. It's a gentle exercise, but uh, even this has a positive effect on the body. Yeah, it does. There is a small study that finds that mindfulness meditation and moderate exercise have protective effects against cold and flu with people who engage in the practices having less severe, shorter, and fewer symptoms of acute respiratory infection. So what we're talking about is a study that was published in the Annals of Family Medicine, and it included 149 people and uh, average age of 59. 51 of them were assigned to have mindfulness meditation training for eight weeks, 47 did moderate exercise for eight weeks. In 51, they didn't have to do anything. And what they found is that those who went through the the mindfulness training were linked with a 40 to 50% decrease in symptoms, flu symptoms, uh, while exercise was linked to a 30 to 40% decrease in symptoms. 
So in other words, again, what you're seeing here is that this act in Tai Chi being a moderate exercise Mm -hmm. and walking being a a moderate exercise does have real ramifications on your health. All right. I'm going to close out here with just a brief little uh, bit of quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh, who is, uh, of course, a Zen master in the Vietnamese tradition. And he wrote a book called Walking Meditation that... uh, came with like a DVD and a CD. It's still out there if you want to learn more about walking meditation. It's a good source. So this is The Welcoming Path by Thich Nhat Hanh. The empty path welcomes you, fragrant with grass and little flowers, the path paved with paddy fields, still bearing the marks of your childhood in the fragrance of mother's hand. Walk leisurely, peacefully. Your feet touch the earth deeply. Don't let your thoughts carry you away. Come back to the path every moment. The path is your dear friend. She will transmit to you her solidity and her peace. And I think that applies beautifully to the idea of labyrinth. I think so, too. I think it's very nice. If you're interested in finding a labyrinth in your city, uh, you can actually go online, and there is a database of them. I believe it's called Worldwide, uh, Worldwide Web Labyrinth. Um, or something along those lines. Just Google it, and you'll find it. Um, And it will actually give you all the locations. That's how I found the one uh, near our work here in Atlanta. All right, well, let's call over the robot here. He couldn't find us in the maze, but the labyrinth, it's pretty easy for him to get here. All right, this one comes to us from Jarek. Jarek writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I just finished listening to the Tongue Parasite podcast. Truly the stuff of nightmares. I had a question that I can't seem to find an answer to. If the parasite is still eating, blood, and available food, then it has to be producing waste, too. I didn't think having something eat your tongue could get any worse, but then it uses your face as a bathroom? Crazy stuff. (laughs) Thanks again for the great podcast, Jarek. And thank you, Jarek, for taking an already disturbing concept and making it just a little more disturbing by bringing up this uh, biologic reality. Now, if the parasite had sexy time in your mouth, you could then rename your mouth, or not your mouth, but the fish's mouth, a cloaca, right? I mean, really, because it's got to be able to function in in those three different ways. I guess. So, uh, cloaca mouth for fish. (laughs) We also heard from a listener by the name of John. Uh, John writes in and says, At the end of your Dark Side of Creativity show, Robert puts mathematical thought and creativity into distinct baskets. Roughly, if you are not really creative, uh, if you are more the logical mathematical type. Unquote. He continues, "Uh, I believe you drastically missed the point. You can find the following in various places. Quote, One of uh, Hilbert's students stopped showing up to classes. On inquiring the reason, Hilbert was told that the student had left the university to become a poet. Hibbert said, I can't say I'm surprised. I never thought he had enough imagination to be a mathematician. Um, and uh, and then uh, John suggested that we explore the connection between mathematics and creativity. As it turns out, uh, we have explored mathematics and, to a certain extent, the link with creativity in some past episodes. So uh, I apologize if I came off like I was dismissing mathematics or certainly science uh, as a whole as anything less than creative because certainly – you don't have to be dealing with art or fiction to use creativity. To, to make any of the great leaps in science that humanity has benefited from, These have, it has come down to creativity, to finding the creative answer to a perplexing problem. And that, of course, is the same way with mathematics. We did a, a podcast about the nature of mathematics. Is mathematics uh, a human creation or a human discovery? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that one's really good. And then we did one, music, 
Math and Mayhem, where we talked about the interconnection between uh, between mathematics and music, both, of course, very creative disciplines uh, with some overlap, but maybe not as much as we, we think. So certainly, uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, John raised the point, because I don't want anyone to get the, the wrong idea that mathematics is not a creative endeavor. Or that we think that, uh, yes. for sure. And then here's one more from Sean. Sean writes in, uh, in response to the same episode, The Dark Side of Creativity, says, uh, I just finished listening to your podcast on the dark side of creativity. In listening to this podcast, I asked myself several questions. As I am a blogger who shares book reviews and some of my own short stories online, I often find myself writing in the horror genre. So at first, I was very interested in the dark side. As I listened to the podcast and heard how some uh, with this mindset are liars and thieves, something came to mind. It is the saying by P.T. Barnum on how, quote, there is a sucker born every minute, unquote. It explains to me how those with a creative mind can easily take advantage of those who do not engage that side of their mind. It explains how so few can steal and lie to so, uh, to so many as some just don't bother to use rational thinking. Uh, at the same time, I think of the thousands of writers out there in the world. Those who tell story to entertain and enrich others through their words are not lying but sharing their creative mind. They use their talent as a means to entertain and not to trick. Then, of course, there are those who write songs, movies, etc., and use their minds uh, for so much more. It's not the creative mind that is dark in my thoughts, but that part of the ego that decides how a person uses that creativity and puts it to use. So to me, it's up to the individual on how they use this gift, much like the Force. Will they be a Jedi for good or a Sith for evil? Uh, and that's from Sean, a.k.a. Nightmist. And if you want to check out his uh, blog, it uh, is nightmist.wordpress.com. So thank you, Sean, for those yeah. thoughts. Uh, certainly worth pondering over the idea of the dark side of creativity and to what extent creativity is a neutral force that is then employed by the ego. Well, I, I like this idea of bringing the ego into it because if you are a literal thinker and you're not so into abstract thinking, you still have an ego, obviously, as well that you tap into to make decisions about your life, which means that you could also go to the dark side. It doesn't necessitate that you be creative in order to lie. I, I love this idea of looking at the ego as being the center of this problem. All right, so there you have it. If you would like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear people's thoughts on mazes and labyrinths, about the difference between the two, about how mazes and labyrinths match up with our experiences of the world abroad and our, our inner turmoil or, at times, inner peace. Let us know about your experiences with mazes and labyrinths, walking a maze, how it made you feel, walking a labyrinth, how it made you feel. Uh, in, any additional listener feedback we can get on that, all the better uh, as far as conveying the idea. So you can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Tumblr. On both of those, we go by the name Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And then on Twitter, we use the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.